Thanks to Harry's for supporting this episode of Market Foolery. Harry's stands behind the quality of their blades, but they know that switching razors is not an easy decision. So they created a trial offer, and you can claim yours by going to harrys.com/fool. It's Thursday, September 27th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio, it's the investor at large, Tim Hansen. Good to see you. Hey, it's been a while. Yeah, you've been busy. Uh, yeah. We've all been busy. It's been a busy time of year. It's back to school. <laughs> back to school. Busy time of year. It won't stop raining Have here you? in Virginia. <laughs> that keeps everybody busy. Did you see that little chart that was uh, that the Washington Post published the other day? That was basically like, here's here's traditionally rainy cities and how this year DC has gotten roughly twice as much rain. We're number one. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't need to see that. Um, we're going to dip into the full mailbag. Uh, we're going to talk IPOs again. And Halloween is just around the corner, and longtime listeners know what that means when Tim Hansen is in the room. But, <laughs> but let's, start with, let's start with Howard Marks. When we talk about annual letters, Warren Buffett rightly gets attention. Uh, Jeff Bezos is starting to get more attention. Howard Marks from Oak Tree Capital, one of those, uh, for as great an investor and as respected an investor as Howard Marks is, his annual letter doesn't really get the uh, the same buzz as the others, but I know it is must reading for you. Yeah, you know, it's like it's like the independent, like the critically acclaimed independent record relative <laughs> to like the Warren Buffett pop single hit. But you know, the Howard Marks letters are routinely excellent. Uh, he had a new one out yesterday. Um, you know, he tends to be a little bit more um, measured in his observations of the world, which I think is you know at, at, at a time like this and the market cycle, you know, ten years of party times, um, it's, it's a perspective worth considering and keeping in mind as people are making asset allocation and capital allocation decisions. And In terms of highlights from the letter, I mean, it's nice that he, he basically said, well, as you said, sort of the, the cautious optimism, where he's basically like, yeah, there are some prices that are high. They're not Bananas like valuations across the board are not nuts. Well, you know, it's I I think the 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 message in the letter that I think people should be uh, interested in is what kind of decisions are you making about your the amount of risk you're taking in your portfolio, and are you being properly compensated for the risk you're taking? So, like for example, they call out they have a list of bullet points of of questionable deals that they've seen done this year, which may point to the fact that in a low interest rate environment, people are sort of stretching and aren't going to get the returns in the future that they expect. Um, one of those, for example, this is near and dear to my heart as a former emerging market stock analyst, is the fact that um, some pension fund manager somewhere uh, made the decision to buy ten billion dollars of Turkish lira denominated. Corporate bonds that yielded six percent. I don't. There's not a world where, I, you know, I would invest in lira-denominated anything for six percent. Let alone you've got the the currency on top of now not a sovereign debt, a corporate debt in Turkey. Six percent. What if we put a zero next to that? What if it was sixty? I mean, that's closer to what you would want to demand. I mean, you know, I think people have seen the the lira volatility this year. I mean, you know, that people that trade has gotten crushed. It probably lost half its value at this point. Um, you know, I I just started looking up some random sovereign debt rates this morning, as as you do on a Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> and just another Thursday. <laughs> you know, you can get a Bolivian Bolivia has like a five year. Bond out there with a coupon of four point seven percent. Bolivia, I, it, you know, how can was, you not jump at that? There was a time in nineteen 
99, 2000. I mean, not that this will ever happen again, but I think you could get Treasury inflation protected securities, you know, so protected against inflation tips. tips in the US. You know, we have our problems, still probably the world's number one credit. Um, and I think the real yield was like 4.5%. I mean, you're locking in at that point, you know, an equity like long term return with very little risk. And now, and now, you know, y- y- Bolivia. And Turkey in local currency have have the same yields. It's it's wild, and it just goes to show that it's always worth taking a step back. And sometimes you you, you should evaluate things on relative terms. You know, like you can't get a great yield on a, a U.S. Treasury right now, but should you really reach for six percent on a Turkish lira denominated corporate bond? Well, do you think that's at least a little bit of what continues to drive the bull market here in the U.S. Is that a lot of institutional investors, a lot of pension fund managers, hedge fund managers are looking around the world and they're not really seeing the types of opportunities. And so they say, you know what? It's not sexy, but yeah, I'm going to put some more money into the Fang stocks. I think that's right. I think that's right. You know, it's it's you know it's a little bit hackneyed to say people don't like this bull market because you see that it's the most hated bull market or whatever you see that from time to time but I do I do think one of the reasons why people haven't been super enthusiastic about this bull market to the extent they haven't been is because yeah as you suggest it's a product of relativism rather than like man I love that company at that valuation this stock is going up it's more like oh that's better than that thing yeah uh, last thing on Howard Mark's letter was there anything that you read yesterday that made you rethink Anything you're doing as an investor, or made you feel better about yourself as an investor? Um, you know, I mean, I think I think the the, the interesting thing he said. So I can say personally, I've been over the past year or so accumulating more cash just because I haven't been finding absolute opportunities. And I'm like, yes, I love that, you know. Um, and 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 I'm a little bit more cautious about saying I'll do it because it's better than doing nothing. I actually think there's a lot of value in doing nothing a lot of the time. <laughs> Um, I wrote an article about that not long ago. Um, so you know the idea that you know he was looking back in you know there's a funny quote which is like real the market has ten year cycles but bankers only have five year memories. Um, it, it, that's amusing because you know he he was saying he started to get more cautious in 2006 and 2007 relative to what he was seeing in the marketplace just because he saw bad deals being made and so on and so forth. And it took a few years before everything collapsed. Um, but at least you know the trade-off between being wrong for a couple of years versus being prepared when the opportunity is there. I think is a is a worthy one. And so you know I think there's a lot of fear of missing out in the world today, both in the financial marketplace, but also in social circles brought on by social media and, and, and what have you. And I think that can be a very dangerous force. And so you know if you can be comfortable doing nothing or comfortable missing out, call that you know Como. Um, <laughs> then uh, I think that that might be a healthier way to, to to look at the world. So, when you look at, as was referred to in the letter, too much money chasing you know bad yeah, deals or yeah, too little sort return, of weak yeah. deals. Um, I know the example you used was emerging markets. Um, I'm wondering if you could also say the same about IPOs, because Matt Kopenheffer was in here yesterday, and one of the things we were talking about was essentially me scratching my head at things like SurveyMonkey yeah, yeah. <laughs> going public and the stock popping 70% at one point. Last week, Eventbrite, you know, yeah. like not to hate on SurveyMonkey or Eventbrite, but lovely people. Lo- lovely people and, and fine businesses, but not. 
not the type of businesses that you would think would warrant that sort of thing. You mentioned to me this morning an IPO coming next week that maybe seems like it's a little bit more tempered, but but still possibly a solid business. Yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens next week. But Upwork is is coming public. Um, Upwork, for people who don't know, is is a platform where freelancers can connect with companies that need software development and other work done. Um, and so it's one of those platforms that has real network effect. Possibilities. Um, it's been, you know, it's been around for a long time. I think almost 20 years at this point. Um, and the business is, um, you know, got solid revenue streams. It, it, um, if it's not generating cash, it's almost generating cash. So not booking huge losses. It's going to have a solid cash position. And I think it's going to go, you know, public at a at a valuation that is going to be. I think it's billion three. I think which would have it be about five times sales. Um, yeah, that's not classically cheap, but in a relative basis, that is more interesting than um, some of the other businesses that are out there. Obviously, network effects can always be a very durable source of competitive advantage, and, and uh, you know, the gig economy is certainly growing. So I think it's going to be an interesting one to look at. You know, I, I, I never buy IPOs out of the gate. You always want to see how a company behaves as a public company before you um, get into it. Particularly as a lot of companies are notorious for dressing themselves up before they initially public offer. Um, but yeah, we'll see how it behaves in 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 the uh, in its first couple weeks as a public company. You know, as you said, I think there's a lot of speculative stuff coming public because it's a good time to cash in, um, but that doesn't mean that it's all speculative. So we'll see. It's a good reminder, and I think you were the one who who first made this point on Market Foolery years ago uh, when we were talking about. I don't even remember the company we were talking about that was going public, but you you, you hammered on the point that was essentially you have to remember when a company's getting ready to go public, they're making their books. Look as good as they possibly can. Yeah. They are pulling every lever they can to make that prospectus look great. Yeah, I think it was Arcos Dorados, which was the Latin American McDonald's franchisee. And I think I haven't I haven't looked at their books recently, um, but at least as of not too long ago, I think the best year in the company's history was the year before they went public. <laughs> well, and on the flip side, if someone's getting ready to go public, and you look at the prospectus and you're like, eh. Wow, that's 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 a big red flag. Like if they can't make it look good, then yeah, yeah, that's true. Now, some obviously there are some businesses that do great things after they go public, or we wouldn't be talking about it. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool Question from Sean Lee, who writes: I'm pruning my stocks, and I always get stuck on General Motors. I purchased the stock around two years ago because of their electric vehicles and their plans with Lyft and Uber. I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about. GM's business and their place in the market these days. Yeah, I mean GM is an interesting stock right now. I mean, uh, is, was that Sean from Sean? Yeah, Sean's in good company in G- owning GM stock. It's a big position at Berkshire Hathaway. Um, uh, David Einhorn at Greenlight owns quite a bit of it. Um, you know, and, and, and I think the idea is under Mary Barra, the company has has um, you know gotten rid of some unprofitable divisions. Um, they've really doubled down on investing in quality metrics like return on invested capital, growing their profit margin, um, you know, and not just trying to grab market share, which I think was the strategy at the company not long ago, which is a good way to you know destroy value over time. Um, you know, and additionally, as, as Sean alludes to, they actually are are quietly, relative to somebody like Tesla, quietly building a, a very interesting electric vehicle and autonomous car business. Um, and so, from a relative valuation perspective. Yeah, I think you're a lot better off in GM than you are in in Tesla. Um, having said that, you know the automotive industry is cyclical; it's capital consumptive. Um, you know, it, it, 
it, it might not strike me as the world's greatest sector to be investing in, given that there are a lot of pressures out in the world. But if you believe, and particularly competitive pressures, because in addition to Tesla and GM, obviously you've got Ford, you have BMW, and so on and so forth. Um, you have that new crazy company in China that's making like the bullet bullet car or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if you're if you're a believer in autonomous driving, you think there's a lot of economic opportunity there um, in, in electric vehicles, and you're looking for something that does not cost as much per sh- or you know on a, on a valuation basis as something like a Tesla, and appears to be you know a little bit better run and more generous with shareholders in terms of capital allocation and dividends. Um, I, w- I would say, yeah, GM GM's interesting, and like I said, you're in a good company. You're saying Mary Barra doesn't have a Twitter account and she's not going spending three hours going on Joe Rogan's podcast. I have not seen her <laughs> smoke dope. I will say that. That's not to say she hasn't. As I said, uh, as I said uh, a couple of weeks ago, to me it wasn't even the smoking dope. It was that <laughs> the waste of time. It was this, it was the here's here's a good use of three hours of my time. Yeah. Uh, that yeah, that thing. I mean, I saw a story yesterday. It was where Tesla owners are volunteering at Tesla service centers to handle customer service for the company, so that they can try to sell more cars and answer questions about how the car works and so on and so forth. Which to me just speaks so elegantly to both the bull and bear cases for Tesla. So like, for, yeah, we've got rabid customers who are willing to drop what they're doing to come help our business out. Great. That is can't fault Tesla for the vision. On the flip side, what is wrong with your business that you need a volunteer workforce? <laughs> Something is wrong in the back office that that has that it's come to that. And now it's great that you've got it. There aren't you know there weren't. I don't think there'd be thousands of people lining up at McDonald's to start flinging burgers if they got into <laughs> trouble, but they don't need to. I think you're right. I think that's uh, if it hasn't already, that data point is showing up in. In bull cases and, and like, like <laughs> right. sell side analysts, both sides. <laughs> like, told you, told you so. <laughs> uh, quick shout out to Harry's. I love Harry's. I've been a customer of Harry's for years, uh, well before they started sponsoring Market Foolery. Harry's stands behind the quality of their blades, and they know that switching razors is not an easy decision. So they created a trial offer, which makes it really easy. And you can claim yours by going to Harry's.com/fool. You get a $13 value trial set that comes with everything you need for a close, comfortable shave, a weighted ergonomic handle, a five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. You got one face, guys. That's that's really that's not in the official talking points from Harry's. That's my that's my talking point. You got one face. There it is. Take care of it. Look good. Our dozens of listeners can redeem their trial set at harrys.com slash fool. So make sure you go there to redeem your offer and let them know that we sent you because it helps support the show and we appreciate that. Again, harrys.com slash fool. Harrys.com slash fool. Um, so before we get to the Halloween story, um, uh, a little bit of sad news for our dozens of listeners, particularly longtime listeners, which is that um, you're moving on. After a decade plus at the Motley Fool, oh uh, yeah, um, and we can't we can't say where at this point. It's not. It's I, I don't want to step on anyone's toes in terms of an official announcement that will be coming. But but I will say that everyone can continue to follow Tim Hansen on Twitter, and they should because he's a great follow. <laughs> Thank you, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's been awesome here. Uh, yeah, gonna do do something different. Hopefully, still fun. Uh, I'm going to share one uh, one uh, Tim Hansen highlight from Market Fuller going back because we we are by the way 
we are closing in on our 1500th episode of Market Foolery. Um, so, when I think about you on this podcast, the first thing that comes to mind um, is the name Len Riggio. Do you remember Len Riggio? Do you remember Barnes and Noble? Barnes and Noble. <laughs> so here's so here here's a little uh, here's a little throwback story. Bear with me. Um, so this was I think this was the first year we were doing Market Foolery, which meant it was 2011. Okay, and I think you and Charlie Travers and I were in the studio and we were talking about GameStop. Len Riggio um, heads up. Barnes and Noble, but I think he's the, uh, he was the CEO and/or founder of GameStop. I think that's right. Yeah. And we were—I don't remember exactly what we said, but we were not bullish on the future of GameStop, having to do with bricks and mortar, how many locations, like for for perfectly valid reasons. And the next morning, uh, and I remember specifically, this was after the trading day had started. The next morning, I get an email. From Len Riggio, and um, he had apparently listened, did not <laughs> did not like what we had to say, uh, uh, held me responsible as you do. Um, yes, and um, uh, it wasn't profane, no. but it was uh, it, it was it was very direct that he uh, did not agree with anything that was said, and and in particular uh, called me out for asking uninformed questions. Well. <laughs> and so, uh, after uh, showing this to our legal team and saying, "Can can we talk about this?" Because I kind of feel like we need to talk about this on today's episode. And uh, they said, "Well, just make sure it's actually from him." So I got in touch with someone at Barnes and Noble, who confirmed yes. And that was my only question: Can you just confirm this is Len Riggio? Right, right. Can you just confirm that during the trading day? You, you know, I mean, having just talked about. Um, Elon Musk deciding to spend three hours going on Joe Rogan's podcast. Um, I felt the same way about Len Riggio. It's like, really, you're you're running, you're <laughs> running Barnes and Noble, and you've decided to spend time listening to this podcast and sending me an email. <laughs> and so, uh, yep. So we, so you came back in the studio, and I read the email, and uh, uh, handed it off to you to sort of respond to the. The pushback that he had on the numbers, and the first thing that you said was, "Well, the first thing I'd like to say to Mr. Riggio is, if Chris isn't allowed to ask uninformed questions, <laughs> that doesn't really leave him much room for anything else." Which is one of my all-time favorite lines. So thank you for that. That's what I think of when I think of you. Well, and, you know, eight years later, here we still are. Um, so the model hasn't changed. We're, exactly. Um, hey, if it works, if it ain't broke. Um, we're we're a month away from Halloween. An estimated 2.6 billion dollars is going to be spent this year in America on Halloween candy. And I would argue that the overwhelming majority of that 2.6 billion is going to be spent on what is referred to as fun-sized candy. And you are as outspoken an advocate against fun-sized candy as anyone I've ever met. You know, and I didn't realize that this was a controversial position until you sent me that article from The Atlantic this morning <laughs> defending fun-sized candy, because my, my feeling is, is it, it's just a euphemism for small. And what's fun about small candy? I mean, if you, you get a big chocolate bar, you share it with your friends, that, to me, is fun. And, you know, fun-sized, being small... Uh, I just, I just, I just don't get it. I didn't think it was a particularly controversial position you were taking either, and <laughs> until I started doing some research this morning, and yes, came across this 
uh, this column that uh, is from last year, and the headline of the column is "Big Candy Bars Have No Place on Halloween," and the subheading is "They Ruin the Fun of the Fun Size Treat." You know, I don't get that because, it, and maybe it's just the fact that you know the disproportion of opportunities you have to get a, fun, a full-size candy bar versus a small candy bar is what makes it fun. Because you know, when I got one as a kid, my eyes lit up. I mean, it was that was like, oh, that's the house. That was awesome. Oh yeah. And maybe if everybody were doing it, it you know, it, it would just be a commodity. And and yeah, we're we were just it, we're just in an arms race towards fun size. And all of a sudden, you know, there's like four foot Wonka bars rolling around the neighborhood as kids stumble home trying to shoulder the burden. But yeah, for me, you know. The 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 smarties and the little like it's like no no I mean the kid dressed up they're out there with their bag they're working hard what's fun about small you're absolutely right I could still tell you and I, it's been more than four decades since I was trick or treating <laughs> in Maine I can still walk you to the house when I bet that it was, was cold in Maine that was, yeah yeah oh yeah but I could still walk you to the house that was known for that's the house that gives out the big bars yeah let's bring in producer Dan Boyd oh Dan, boy I'm assuming you have thoughts on this well Chris you know there's a reason we call him Tim wrong about everything <laughs> handsome around the office because once again he's Your last wrong shot about to this get too. shots of me Dan last time oh I'm taking them the fun size candy is wonderful uh, and and Okay, you're right about when you're a kid, you're going to go around trick or treating, and there's a one house that gets the full size bars, and you're like, oh, this is great, whatever. But as an adult, well, are you considering yourself an adult? <laughs> that's that's a good point. <laughs> as I've aged, I've I've discovered that eating a full size candy bar, like a full size Snickers, I can't even finish one. But can't it's you just can't much. you just wrap it up and save it for later, share it with a friend? What uh, wrap? What are you talking about? <laughs> Wrap up a candy bar and save it for later? Come on, dude. All right, so your your argument for fun size is portion control, which again, portion yes. control is not a lot of fun. But it, it's you don't okay. You can defend smaller portions, but I wouldn't call them fun. Maybe like healthy, okay, I mean, healthy size. We can we can take this analogy a little <laughs> further and be like a quadruple cheeseburger is better than a single cheeseburger because it's got four patties instead of one. I'm not and who doesn't want who doesn't want one of these stupid fun size cheeseburgers? Come on, man. Sometimes too much of a good thing applies. But it's still more fun to have five patties. I'm not saying you should do it all the time. Like it's more fun to shave with a five-bladed razor, right? Absolutely. I okay. You know what? I, I think that you're getting a little hung up on the idea that fun size is what we should call it. It's just what we call it. But you got it. You you can't have it all, man. You all right. can't do it. I mean, I, I, your argument that there should be smaller portion sizes available to people, I agree with. Whether you call it fun or not, maybe we're into semantics, but certainly, Tim, you can see the business side of this. Like if you're running Hershey, oh sure. I mean the economics of on the a fun cost size. per ounce. Yeah, no, you're you're killing it on fun. That's all margin. Yeah, it's totally margin. I guess the only thing I'd say. I mean, most of those companies, like you, they, like you know, actually take a somewhat crazy argument that we're having and bring it back to the real. Like those companies that make commodity products like Coca-Cola, beer, chocolate, like, they make a lot of their money on package innovation. Like the way that you package that stuff up and put bells and whistles on it and so on and so forth. I mean, that's where you get a lot of your margin. Oh, whoever came up with let's take the fun size candy bars and let's put seasonal wrapping on them. Whoever that person is, 
I mean, they they have to be in the confectioner's hall of fame, don't they? Or the fun size candy bars with different types of fun size candy bars in the same bag to mix it up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. <laughs> I guess the only the only uh, thing I'd say additionally about fun size because we've clearly beaten this topic to death <laughs> is that my experience is that they're We're just are... thorough in our investigations of important issues. Look, you know what? You know what? Bloomberg has plenty of podcasts that people can listen to. That's all I'm saying. We're not getting this. You're not getting. <laughs> You're this. not getting this on Bloomberg. You're not getting five plus minutes of fun size debate on Bloomberg. All due respect to Bloomberg. <laughs> I this is the discussion people want to hear. This I, is the one that people have. We're going to get emails about this. I suspect I won't be around to answer them. So good luck to you two. But <laughs> now the only other thing I'd say is that there are some candy bars. That don't deserve to be full size. There are some candy bars where I'm just like, you know what? I'm not. I'm not looking for more than just like one bite out of you. Like what? Uh, baby Ruth. If you tell me you've got fun size Baby Ruth at your desk, I'm going to be at your desk in about three seconds. If you like, say, oh, I've got full size Baby Ruth. Uh, good for you. There's not, a reason I'm... they dropped a Baby Ruth in the pool in Caddyshack. <laughs> is all I'm saying. I don't think I could eat a full size white chocolate bar. Oh no! Yeah, no, that's just no, that's. But as like a little thing with your coffee, maybe that is fun. Maybe maybe Dan turned me. I don't know. I'll have to think about it. <laughs> Drop us an email, marketfoolery@fool.com. We need the dozens of listeners to weigh in on this debate, and uh, and you know maybe maybe to Dan's uh, detriment or maybe to his victory, uh, you won't be around to deal with him. <laughs> Tim Hansen, don't be a stranger. Thank you, man. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.